From Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, this is a podcast of KZYX's local coronavirus update for Friday, December 11th, 2020. On Fridays, Alicia Bales talks with Mendocino County's public health officer, Dr. Andy Corrin, about the county's response to the pandemic and listeners call in with their questions. And good afternoon. This is Alicia Bales. I'm on the air with Dr. Andy Corrin and a whole cast and crew of folks who are working on the coronavirus response locally for Mendocino County. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Corrin. Um, Can we go around and just sort of introduce for our listeners who's on the air? I'm Dr. Andy Corrin, health officer for Mendocino County. Kelsey Rivera with the Department Operations Center for Public Health. Hi, I'm Zane Ortiz. I am with NCO Volunteer Network. And I'm Rebecca Emberg. I'm also with NCO Volunteer Network. Okay, there's one more of you, and that is Becky Emery. And Department (laughs) Operations Center Manager. Thank you. Okay, thanks everybody for being here. I know that um, we didn't have a Friday county briefing. So now this will be our, our chance to catch up. You did give an update to the Board of Supervisors and people can go back to the Board of Supervisors uh, YouTube channel and, and watch that update that you gave. But it's been several days. That was Tuesday. So why don't you give us the the week's kind of information, what's happening with the county? I know there's a number of issues we've been following. Yeah. So just to go through the usual numbers and not bore people too much, our um, uh, daily case uh, daily case rate is up to 24 uh, per day. That's a that's an average. Uh, our test positivity rate is up to 4.62. Um, we have um, eight people in the hospital. Uh, let me just check to see if that's the most recent. No, actually, I think we have uh, seven in the hospital at this point, and. Uh, Two of those are in the ICU. Uh, the rest are in med surge. Um, and I'll get to the reason why that ICU is so important. We have in our county 288 people in isolation, 458 people who are in quarantine. Uh, we should note that on uh, it was yesterday. I don't have today's numbers. But yesterday we had 38 new cases. And the day before that, 58 new cases. And these numbers are running very, very high, you know, and it's it's got our contact investigators, contact tracers to the point where we're really having to make some adjustments and prioritize so that we're getting in touch with as many people as we possibly can um, who, uh, and, and that's pretty much everyone uh, who comes out positive that we can get in touch with on the same day, which is much better than many other counties in California. Uh, who are going through even more of the surge, but for all those contacts that come out of them, we can't possibly contact all of them. And we do follow up all the um, the ones who are cases every day with a call to see how they're feeling. And with the contacts, we try and also follow them up on a regular basis. But we're having to make some priority changes. And I, I think that it's important to put Mendocino County in a perspective at this point of what's happening in California Again, I'm going to go as of yesterday because I didn't uh, have any new uh, new data yet from today. But the uh, number of people who are in the, were in the hospital in California was 11,497 people, and yesterday alone it went up to 485 people, which was a four percent increase. The ICU in California again was 2,621. And uh, the increase yesterday was 115 
which is a 5% increase. So why am I looking at that so so uh, closely? Because the governor has released, and I think most people who are listening probably aware of the regional stay-at-home order, which is based on the capacity of ICU beds that are available in each region. So we are in the Northern California region. Um, I'm not going to read off all the counties that, that, that are included unless somebody asks. It does not include Sonoma, so that's a little different than the usual grouping we have. Um, but those north of us and then east uh, to Nevada. Um, our county, when the governor first, or our region, when the governor first announced this stay at, much stricter stay-at-home order, um, had the fewest apparent uh, ICU beds available. But by the next day, there was a recount or some shuffling around, and it turned out we looked pretty good. In the meantime, San Joaquin uh, Valley and uh, Southern California dipped under 15% available ICU beds. I know this is kind of complex, so it helps when you nod your head and you can follow me. Um, they dipped under 15%, and so so the uh, they went on this regional stay-at-home order. Within a few days of that, uh, many counties in the Bay Area decided voluntarily to go on it because things were just barreling down. They were losing their icy beds, and the reason for the stay-at-home order is to is to shelter our ICU beds so that if somebody comes in with a heart attack or a stroke or an accident, they have care. This is a very important resource for our for our uh, community. Uh, within a day of, of Bay Area announcing their preemptive stay at home order, the Sacramento area went on a stay at home order because they dipped down to less than fifteen percent. Um, so. Northern California now is the only region that is not on the stay-at-home order. Well, as soon as those beds become precious south of us, people get transferred to wherever we have beds. We have a smaller population area, and it's great that we have the beds and the availability that we do for ourselves, but they're not just for ourselves. And so I'm concern that, number one, what happens in Bay Area and Southern California also happens here, but also with transfers from those huge metropolitan areas, we're going to be swamped very soon. And so to protect uh, our capacity, uh, we are seriously considering, even before the governor announces, that we may do what they did in the Bay Area, which is preemptively enforce a stay-at-home order here. This has not been decided yet, but it's something that we're seriously considering and uh, have a meeting uh, tomorrow with the um, uh, regional, the um, rural association of northern uh, uh, health officers. All right. So this would be something that you as a group of regional public health officers for the for the counties in the northern California region would be deciding collectively. I don't think we can decide. I don't think we can enforce it collectively. It is a authorized organization, CDPH, the California Department of Public Health, recognizes right. us. We'll be discussing, uh-huh. but I think at this point, legally, it will be the responsibility of the individual counties okay. or state because they have legis- We have legislative ability. So you to- could do it for Mendocino County, just yes. as and each individual county could do it. But your meeting is a region to decide. 
uh, if, if it makes sense for all of you to do it. And also just, you know, because we want to consult with each other in making this kind of a move and to see also how we're all doing. It, it, you know, it's one thing to see a bunch of statistics. It's another thing to, you know, yeah. among those who well, are looking at those right. statistics. And you hear uh, different stories, too, from, from even within the county from, you know, different sectors of the of the health system as well. They have different views. You know, we talked to an, an emergency room doctor here on Mondays and Wednesdays who has a, a very different view than, say, the CEO of the hospital system might have. So um, that's it'll be interesting to see what the different counties, uh, how they're actually experiencing the the surge even though our numbers seem to look okay. Okay, so interestingly enough, the shelter-in-place wasn't even on my list of of questions to ask you because we have so much going on locally as well. I know there was an additional death this week. Uh, can you tell us anything about this human being? This is an elderly man who was in our uh, hospital in ICU. He, he's not a county resident, uh, and he just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, had some other uh, other system comorbidities, and uh, they were not able to control it in the hospital, and he passed away, uh, I think it was early this morning. Oh, oh! so we had an, an even additional death. This is number 25? This was 25, but wouldn't be counted as number 25 because oh, he's not a county resident. All right. Um, that's very sad news. Uh, we also this week had a spike in positive cases. We had our highest day by far, uh, 57 cases on, I think it was Wednesday. Yes. Or, yeah. Was it Wednesday? It was yeah, Wednesday night. Yesterday and today's, Kelsey, you might have a number today, but it wouldn't be the whole number. So we expect it not to go down drastically. We are in a surge and uh, it's really overtaking us. And remember that for every case, there are multiple contacts and our our our, uh, investi- our case investigation and contact tracing team are doing a yeoman's job. I mean, I can't tell you how hard they're pulling to keep up. Right, and that's one of the reasons why we have Zena and Rebecca here today from NCO to talk about the volunteer contact tracing project or, or, or efforts that NCO is, is working on. Let's get to that in just a moment when we uh, sort of get through the rest of, of our updates. Um, testing this week, you did have a mobile testing event in Fort Bragg uh, at the Vets Hall with the new OptumServe lane. Can you give us an update on, on how that went and what to expect from the mobile testing uh, moving forward? I, I remember something about a testing event today that you talked about last week, but I wasn't able to confirm. So if you could talk about the Fort Bragg event that happened Tuesday and then talk about whether or not the one today is happening and then what's happening next week. Can I ask Becky to fill us in because I stick my foot in my mouth almost every time I talk about it. So certainly we did have a mobile testing. It was our very first mobile testing event in Fort Bragg. It was um, a limited testing and it did occur last Tuesday at the Veterans Hall. We have another testing event coming this coming Tuesday. It's that traveling team. Um, They can do up to 165 tests, and they will be starting at 9 a.m. at the Veterans Hall in Fort Bragg. Um, In addition to that, the surveillance team um, did testing this morning uh, at Consolidated Tribal Health. And so that was the testing that occurred today here in Redwood Valley. Um, And we have additional surveillance testing um, that is occurring, (coughs) excuse me, 
uh, this coming, or excuse me, tomorrow in Willits. Oh, what's happening so, in Willits? Um, uh, excuse me. So, and actually, Kelsey has been coordinating those efforts, and so I'm going to have her step in and also give you information on um, the earlier death that occurred this week. Okay, thank you. You're muted. There you go. Apologies. Hey, Kelsey. <laughs> okay, so um, while Becky pulls up the information about testing, um, I will, the, the gentleman that passed away um, uh, was a 53-year-old. Um, his race is unreported. And he passed away at home with hospice services um, in place. He had been hospitalized, but he was able to be at home uh, with family and with hospice. That's young. Yes, definitely. So um, if you give me a second on the, the testing, I'll pull up the calendar. Okay, great. And one thing I, I also wonder is if there's any place where we can find, realize you guys are swamped. I can't even imagine how swamped you are with 450 people in quarantine and reaching three, nearing 300 people in active isolation. But is there any place where we can kind of find these testing events listed online or, or some way to, so to, to keep track of that? Or, um, thank you for asking, Alicia. Um, the testing events are located on the Mendocino County COVID-19 website. And if you go to the tab that is local surveillance testing opportunities, they are listed there. And so you'll see there also not just the testing event that occurred today. Uh, we have testing tomorrow, excuse me, uh, in, at Sherwood Valley Rancheria from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Okay, and that's in Willits. They're listed on there, and they list them by location, so you can go straight to your area and see when that testing is occurring. Uh, and so that includes the uh, surveillance traveling team that is currently scheduled to be in uh, Fort Bragg every Tuesday starting at 9 a.m. at the Veterans Hall located at 360 Harrison Avenue. Okay, so that's going to be a weekly testing event then. At this time, that's what, what we are planning to do is a weekly testing event. Uh, we are looking at moving um, a lane of permanent optum testing to Fort Bragg. And so then we will ship that lane to another location, that traveling team. Oh, I see. Okay, so so let me just get this clear. If I understand it correctly, you're going to open a little optum serve in Fort Bragg that's going to be open all the time. And at that point, this tr this mobile unit will m go somewhere else. That's correct. Got We're working it. on that effort. Wow. So Fort Bragg's going to have their own little Optum serve. Should I call it a little Optum serve or it's, it's sort of a normal sized Optum serve? You'll have your own full sized Optum serve on Fort, in Fort Bragg with That's free correct. surveillance testing. That's great. And when, when do we expect that to open? Uh, it's going to take us at least two weeks. So I don't have the exact date yet, but as soon as we do, we will make sure we share it with you as well to get out to our community. Great. And so until then, Fort Bragg residents and coastal residents can get OptumServe testing Tuesdays from 9 to 11 at the Vets Hall. It's actually 9. It's first come, first serve, but um, it, it does say 9 to 11. Oh. No, I don't think there's an end time oh, at 11. Just nine till whenever. Okay. Until, until you run out of swabs. All right. Well, uh, probably. So we the 165. 
okay to yeah, we'll get to 165. So probably best to get there early. Um, all right. Well, that's really, really good news, you guys. Thank you so much. And then um, sort of the last thing I wanted to make sure to cover before we uh, move on to, to NCO is the um, building bridges outbreak at the homeless shelter in Ukiah. What can you tell us? I know that you were you had identified eight cases of residents at the homeless shelter uh, and you were doing testing, outbreak testing. Uh, any any other cases have been discovered and and what's the status of the people who have um, tested positive? How are they doing? Kelsey, can I ask you to respond to that? Sure, I'd be glad to. So um, at this point, we still remain at eight positive cases. Um, They are all doing well. Um, Some mild symptoms with a few folks, but doing very well and in isolation. Um, There are approximately 35 folks that are in quarantine um, at the shelter itself. And once again, all doing well. Um, And at this point, we did testing on... Uh, Tuesday again, and we did testing again today. Unfortunately, we do not have the results back from the Tuesday tests, um, although we are anxiously awaiting. We're thinking that those will arrive today. Um, so we will probably know more once we uh, see what happens and how, with those test results. How big would you estimate the community of people is who regularly is around and makes use of the homeless shelter in Ukiah? You said you have eight in isolation who are who are positive tests positive for coronavirus and then another 35 who are in quarantine what what kind of a percentage of the of the whole community is that do you think you know it's an interesting question and i have not been working um directly with the homeless population for a while becky may know more about that but i can tell you that they they have been housing um approximately 47 people um nightly and that um, I believe they go up to 60. However, they also have uh, many, many people that utilize the day center. Um, and so they, they come daily, they check in with staff, they utilize the showers and the laundry facilities. Um, there's a, a, a weekly clinic that's offered with in collaboration with street medicine um, so they, they can get medical checkups and um, get some medical needs taken care of every Wednesday. All right. Well, thank you for keeping us apprised of the status of that outbreak. It's a really a very upsetting situation knowing that the homeless uh, folks it, in our in our county are yeah, very vulnerable, exactly. Congregate living situation because even though it's nighttime only, they're they're there together and uh, and with a vulnerable population. And I believe in Mendocino County our homeless and I, correct me if I'm wrong, the memory I have is in the range of 350 uh, clients. Is that, Becky, you're saying no? Okay. Do you have a, a, num- a number that you, we can hang our head on or not? Not at this point. For so county. for Mendocino County, the, um, the homeless population is significantly higher. And I don't have the point in time count information in front of me. I know historically we were in 1,300 people from Mendocino County. Um, they then reclassified the definitions for homeless through the housing and urban development. Um, and it brought us under a thousand, but it's still significantly higher. Uh, we can certainly get that information for you, Alicia. Okay. Um, and I know that you do have a street medicine crew through Adventist Health that is working on this uh, on on this situation in order to help protect the people who are are living houselessly in our community, uh, especially going into the winter. Um, 
So thanks for that. All right, let's turn to Zaina and Rebecca. You're here from NCO, and NCO does have... Uh, has put in significant effort to train volunteers in contact tracing and case investigation. Um, can you talk with us a little bit about those efforts? We get a lot of calls from people who want to help. Uh, and I wonder if NCO's project is a way that they can do that. All right, there we go. I think I'm unmuted now. Um, so definitely, we have several different volunteer opportunities, uh, one of which is, of course, this contact tracing. This can take quite a while to actually complete. There's certain steps involved, um, a lot of training. So we currently have around uh, over a dozen volunteers, and they are all together regularly doing over 500. I think last month's report was uh, close to 800 hours for contact tracing. So we start with a orientation like we do for most of our volunteer opportunities. And then once we talk about the orientation, we'll talk a little bit more about the training that's involved. Um, one of the first steps is a CalConnect training, uh, which comes after a six hour training. <laughs> so there's an online six hour training and then the CalConnect training, which can take a week or two. Um, and then once our volunteers complete that, we send them off to public health and they work as a team with public health and their contact tracing employees to do similar work so that they can do the, you know, help the community. All right. And what's your role in that? I help with scheduling. Uh, we have a great need for volunteers on the evenings and weekends. Um, so one of the biggest pieces I play is just to help make sure that we have enough volunteers and we have them on days that are actually needed. Um, for the contact tracing, it is Monday through Monday. So it's seven days a week. We have volunteers who work several days of those and you know, each week. Um, some of them come in every other week. And then it's really up to our volunteers. Whatever days they have available are days that I will schedule them. Um, I also help them keep track of those hours. And then we work on paperwork and just some other things. I kind of just get them started with public health and help them to get going. And about how big is the volunteer core there who is who, that's actively working with public health in the county to do contact tracing? So we have right now over a dozen. I believe uh, 14 are active right now. Um, I have 14 for last November. Um, we may have one or two more this December. Um, and then I think it'll really depend on, um, you know, how much we get the word out about uh, this opportunity. I think with the spike coming out of the holiday season, it is one of those things that we still need. Um, one of the things that we do need, however, is bilingual contact tracers. We've been asked if we can do just Spanish speaking, and unfortunately, CalConnect is not a system that is designed specifically just for Spanish speaking contact tracers. So we are looking for bilingual contact tracers. That's a huge need in our community. And you know, even if we don't have um, you know, a place for them in some of our other programs is definitely a need in contact tracing right now. All right. And if people are out there listening who really want to help you with this and have time to do it and are bilingual, especially, how should they get involved? So they can visit our NCO site, which is ncoinc.org, 
or you can go to volunteernco.org. And once you're on that site, you can kind of look around. We have financial resources and people who can help in other ways. Um, our case contact or contact tracers, <laughs> uh, they end up referring, you know, making several referrals and that's part of their job. Um, and then it'll come back sometimes to NCO, our caseworkers here who do a financial assistance um, or our helping hands volunteers who do grocery shopping or those who need to stay home. So helping hands volunteers, all those programs again are on the ncoinc.org. You can do an application online and we can hook up anyone with either an in-home volunteer station like contact tracing or if they're willing to be out and about with other volunteer opportunities. All right. And you'll stay on for the rest of the show in case callers will have questions for you. Definitely. All right. And Rebecca Enberg, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, um, I would just add uh, that Zaina mentioned about the helping hands opportunity. Um, sometimes we, are, we refer to it as grocery shopper. And so right now we are very busy with that in tandem with contact tracing comes um, uh, the responsibility for making sure that these families who need to immediately isolate um, to provide them with any um, goods, household goods that they need for that time period. So volunteers are, are um, heading out all around the county for us and delivering those grocery items to you, uh, and some household goods. But they, um, they're already arranged, they're already paid for. We just need volunteers to pick up the items and take them to the homes. And once again, we could really use Spanish-speaking volunteers. All right. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. I had, I didn't under, really get that the scale of that volunteer effort that was happening, um, that there are people all over the county who will do the, do the pickup for your shopping if you're stuck in quarantine or in, in isolation during this pandemic. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So let's go ahead and open up the phone lines. Uh, that was a pretty beefy update there. Lots of different aspects of the response. Um, our phone line, our number here in the studio is 707-895-2448. That's 707-895-2448. Give us a holler if you've got a question for Dr. Andy Corrin, our public health officer, about any aspect of the pandemic and the county's response. And also any of the other folks who are working uh, on the county's response, Becky Emery, Kelsey Rivera, and Zaina Ortiz and Rebecca Enberg are here from North Coast Opportunities uh, to talk more about uh, volunteer efforts, uh, specifically contact tracing and case investigation volunteers, but also um, sounds like a whole lot of other ways to help uh, during the pandemic. So that number is 707-895-2448. Um, the lines are open. So if you got a question, now's the time to call. Um, yeah. Okay. No callers. That's very unusual. Uh, I know it's, it's very unusual. And, uh, maybe that just means that we have talked about coronavirus enough. <laughs> so, so let me add something else in another reminder. Sure. We, we do have a influenza season. Oh, you do have a caller. Yeah. Oh, oh, we have, okay. The phone line's lit up. Okay. There. Don't forget to get an influenza vaccine. Still oh. very, very important. Let's take our first call. Good afternoon, caller. You're live on the air. Hi, good afternoon. I'm sure there's a lot of questions out there still. Um, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I think it's really good to help us stay healthy out here. And uh, one of, you know, I'm wearing the mask and doing all those things and being careful, but there is something I, w I wonder about is when you go shopping 
and maybe especially for people that work in retail that come in constant contact with people all day long. And that is, you know, we do have some aerosols floating around in the air, and when you get home, should you know, I'm careful when I change clothes. Should should we shower? I mean, if if you're not, but if you're in contact with people all day in and out, should you shower when you get home in case you have some of the COVID on you, so to speak? Um, let me clarify with the caller. Are you one of those uh, retail workers who's exposed? No. It, no, but I, but I do, you know, I'm concerned about them, and you know, and I'm, I'm elder, and I'm very careful, but I do have to go and get groceries and do some things, and and my contact, you know, time isn't so much as people that are out there in, in retail, and I was kind of separating my question, like people that are in constant contact, should they like shower? I mean, if I worked in a hospital and I was you know, taking care of COVID patients, I think I certainly would want to take super precautions. But as the average person that goes out and shops and groceries and goes to hardware and gets gas, um, so I was kind of wondering, does it depend? Should you shower or does it matter how much contact you have? I know it's kind of a hard question probably to answer, but well, for the people thought? who have the most, for the people who have the most contact, like you're saying, healthcare workers, they have personal protective equipment that they wear, which is not just the mask, but if they're in direct contact with people, they'll uh, use gloves, but they also use gowns, and uh, and they keep that on. And if they need to for their own protection, they also wear um, a facial protection, like a, a, a mask. Uh, not a mask, but I mean a shield. And so they're pretty well garbed up, and then they are supposed to remove that and uh, it's not a bad idea to take a shower, but I don't think that there are um, recommendations that people need to take a shower because really the contact, except if you're, you know, touching yourself where you have, you know, or your clothing, where you definitely have been exposed to a significant amount of virus, um, the, the chances of passing it uh, or in, getting infected from that are small. So washing your hands, keeping your hands away from your face, are very important. Um, the other aspect I think you were asking about is retail workers, and retail workers do uh, have a little additional problem. Even if they and everyone that's passing by their check stand are wearing masks, uh, they are still in closer than six foot contact usually. So most of our retail stores, when they notice that, will put up a clear barrier, uh, you know, some plexiglass or even just some hanging. Uh, a clear tarp or something like that that keeps people separate. <clears throat> as far as yourself, I think if you're taking the right precautions um, and wearing the mask, and if you wanted to wear the face shield, that would be okay also. Uh, we have learned that the mask is not only protective for the people around you, but it is somewhat protective for the person who's wearing it. That's a good thing. Um, and the shield also protects the person who's wearing it. Um, so those are the recommendations at the current time. Some people have decided, well, they do want to change all their clothes or shower if they go out at all, or whatever they bring into the house they want to wash down. That has not proven to be that necessary. All right. Let's see if we can take one more call before we run out of time here. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm calling with two questions. 
Yeah, go ahead and turn your radio Alexa, off and it'll be less confusing. confusing. Alexa, turn the radio off. Yep. Can we look up how many infected positive people we have by zip code and any place? And uh, what about testing the wastewater system by zip code for like this little city of bullets so we could see uh, the average number of expected positive cases in our wastewater system compared to the uh, actual cases that we know about so we could be more alert and more highly aware of what was going on. Has anybody considered doing wastewater testing? All right. Thanks for the question. So the first question is um, the number of positives by zip code. We've just begun to put that on. It's a link um, that you, it's not a link. It's actually on the website. Okay. So it's on our website. And I think you have to scroll down from the from the dashboard and you'll actually see the zip code um, results that you're asking for. And that was just asked for earlier this week and we've got it up and we're going to try and make the improvements that people are asking for in the dashboard. But that certainly is one. People will be um, thrilled to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I know. Um, the other thing is as far as testing wastewater, I know that that has been uh, something that has been of interest. I think that there are technical problems doing it within a community, and I don't think that it's going to be an easy thing to interpret. Uh, I know that they uh, had a big splash about it around a dorm. One of the universities was testing their dorms and did uncover uh, a, a number that they prevented an outbreak there, or maybe they lessened the, uh, the amount of outbreak. But in a city or you know, in a, a county district where we collect wastewater, while it's been raised, it's not been something that I am aware of has been used with any effect. All right. Um, one more call. Do you all have the time? Okay. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, missed it. Okay, well, that takes care of that. Um, okay, so it's about 3.35, and you have graciously uh, agreed to be here from 3 to 3.30, so I've kept you. So I'm going to let you all go, but thank you so much for being on the air with us today, uh, Dr. Corin and the rest of the crew. You're doing amazing work, and we're really, really grateful uh, for everything that you're doing every day to keep the community safe. So please take good care. Uh, anything you want to leave listeners with before you head off for the week? I would just say, you know, we're in a huge surge at this point, and it's very unfortunate. People really have to take care of themselves and their families. Uh, really try and avoid gatherings, stay outside uh, as much as you can. If you're inside, use ventilation, make sure you're wearing your mask, keeping hygiene, staying six feet away from just about everybody, except if they're in your household. Uh, we will be releasing some holiday guidance to, for, you know, safe practices. Um, we are gearing up to be able to give the uh, vaccines that are on their way. Wow, that was my other question. I didn't get to that. That's another one I'm sure you missed. But we didn't have much time to talk about it, and uh, it is on the way. Uh, but even with the vaccines coming, taking the basic precautions of wearing masks, keeping your social distance, using hygiene, increasing the ventilation to get rid of the, the hovering viruses that, are, that stay in the air, all that is still going to be necessary for months and months to come. I will say that with the holidays coming up, please try and stay home minimize any kind of gatherings that's where this spreads 
We just see, are seeing the peak coming from Halloween and just the very beginning of Thanksgiving that's got us very frightened from a public health point of view. We still have yet to live through Christmas and New Year's, and it's already overwhelming our uh, our facilities. So let's all work as a community to keep that contagion down to the minimum. And I did mention get your flu shots, and when the vaccines are available for COVID, let's line up and get those vaccines as well. Well, not line up. We'll, no, we we'll come in individually it. far, far we'll, away from each other. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But anyway, you got the message. We really want to get people vaccinated, get ourselves out of this horrible era of containment, of uh, of contagion, contagion, and get into containment. All right. Well, Dr. Corin, thank you so much. Let's let's we next week. Let's talk more about your plant, your vaccine planning, and um, by next week, I expect you may have some doses in hand of this vaccine. We'll have some good news to talk about. All right. Thanks again, everybody. And we'll talk with you next Friday at three o'clock. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio. This was our local coronavirus update for Friday. Uh, We come to you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at three o'clock with these local coronavirus updates for Mendocino County. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, it's Dr. Drew Colfax. And on Fridays, we're lucky to have the public health officer who comes to answer your questions about the county's response and sort of the the, uh, public health response uh, to the pandemic here locally. So um, again, we'll be back on Monday with Dr. Colfax. And I want to thank you all for listening. Thanks for calling in and have a very safe and healthy weekend. You've been listening to the local coronavirus update from KZYXNZ Mendocino County Public Broadcasting in Philo, California. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Mask Awareness Project of North Coast Opportunities. To hear this program live, tune in on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific time to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williton Ukiah at 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Or you can hear us anywhere at kzyx.org, where you can also find out how to donate or become a KZYX member. Thanks for listening.